Wedge Issues is brought to you by WISPolitics.com, a place where political insiders go for news, opinion, and campaign information. Once again, that's WISPolitics.com. You're not supposed to talk about politics and religion in polite company, but Cap Times reporter Caitlin Farrell did just that in her latest cover story. She traveled throughout Wisconsin and spoke with members of three different Christian denominations in different parts of the state. She joined me this week to talk about her story and what she learned about these voters and how their faith informs their approaches to politics and civic engagement. I'm Jesse Opoyan, and this is Wedge Issues, a Cap Times podcast about the 2018 elections in Wisconsin. Stay tuned for my conversation with Caitlin in just a minute. Wisconsin, oh, Wisconsin, here with me this week is Caitlin Farrell, our investigative and enterprise reporter here at the Cap Times. Uh, she took a little road trip a few weeks ago and bopped around the state to Lake Mills and Green Bay and Racine and talked to some religious voters about how their faith informs uh, the way they approach politics and civic engagement. Caitlin, uh, why did you want to do this story? Hey, yeah, so I just, I guess, have a personal interest in how faith and religion intersect. And I think that you know, one of the um, the, the make, one big constituent that I think we hear about both um, in state media and in national media really is what the electoral power of the white evangelical vote, around 80-some percent, really elevating, lifting Trump to a victory, and in Wisconsin as well. And so, um, so you know, always struck by that statistic and what that means and, and just really wanted to explore more the intersection of how maybe other Christians just in the state and from other um, racial, ethnic backgrounds and geographic locations, really um, how they view their faith and how or if or to what degree that might inform the way that they view social issues and politics as well. So um, I specifically chose different places around the state and um, different types of Christian denominations because Christians make up around 70% of those who claim religion in Wisconsin. And so I try to kind of span out and, and find those folks that way. So how did you settle on these particular communities and these particular denominations? I, w- I guess I wanted to go to different geographic places. And so I chose Racine because I knew that there was interesting dynamics going on there with Foxconn coming. Uh, and I knew that, that Racine was home to one of the oldest African-American congregations. And in some ways, African-American congregations consider themselves theologically evangelical. So that some of their religious beliefs might align with some of the traditional white evangelical beliefs, but yet we see that translated very differently in the way that they vote and view politics. And so I was curious to get a perspective from some African-American congregants and leaders down there, especially with Foxconn coming and some of the the challenges that we see in Racine. Um, I chose Lake Mills because I I was focusing on a specific branch of Lutheranism called Wells. It's Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod. They're not the largest group of Lutherans, but they are, um, quote unquote, more conservative theologically. And I thought it was interesting that they started in Wisconsin and were headquartered here and their whole base is is here. So Lake Mills was somewhat close to Madison, um, 
but was home to a large congregation and a growing one there. And so that's why I went there. And then Green Bay is is where I grew up, actually. And I um, have been interested in, in just the growth and change of Green Bay, as we've seen um, with Hispanic immigrants moving in to work in the meatpacking plants. And um, the way that we've seen the Catholic Church and Catholic ministries in Green Bay grow as a correlation with that Latino community. And so I was interested to, to speak to some of those those people who... Um, who kind of um, might not fit in a certain box, but have different interests and backgrounds and be a little bit different than the typical um, person from Green Bay that one might think of. So um, I think you, you kind of tapped into this a little bit, but no matter what, when you talk about religion and politics, you're going to either alienate people or, or um, I don't know, it's it's a hot it's a hot topic, hot button issue. But um, I, I know you've gotten a lot of feedback from people, some positive and, and some sort of frustrated with uh, the choices that you made in terms of uh, congregations to talk to. So, so why did you stick within Christianity and why did you feel like these were particularly good representative uh, groups to, to go with? Yeah. Um, yes, that's very true. <laughs> I, I tend to have these ambitious, grand ideas about, you know, I will I will examine this intersection and return with a wonderful epiphany of things and it will illuminate all kinds of things. And then it's always a lot harder than um, a lot harder, full of a lot of nuance and complication than I initially <laughs> intend. So, yes, some people were not happy, in fact, with uh the fact that I profiled Christians, profiled the specific Christians I did, and did not speak to people in Madison. And so, um, you know, both with your story and with my story, the, the, the entire premise of the piece was to get out of Madison right. and speak to people who are very different than the typical Madison-Dane County folks. I chose Christians specifically really because I, I wanted to tap into um, faith behind the largest electoral momentum there. So if we're seeing that some of the biggest blocks, particularly electing typically Republican candidates, are people doing that in the name of their faith um, in some regard, you know, and because, again, they make up over, over an overwhelming majority, um, that's why I decided to, to talk to them, because I wanted to look at an impact they might have and why they might you know, be some of them, some of them, you know, again, are not, as they have had said, not necessarily always going to vote Republican, be conservative. They, you know, was hoping, I guess, to tap into, you know, some extent that they might be a swing vote, an independent vote. And, um, and so that's why I decided to really, to really look, look at that. And so, um, I mean, I'm definitely interested and open in the ideas and reasons why other folks might, um, other religions, of course, and the way in which they that might inform their politics. But as far as folks that have real influence and the ability to affect election and come out in mass, it's really it's really Christians that we've self-proclaiming Christians we've seen, um, and so that's why I wanted to, to translate more in that way. Okay, well, let's dig in a little bit and find out uh, what you learned. So, in your story, I was really intrigued by some of the interactions you had with the the Wells congregation that you talked with. It sounds like they were pretty reluctant to let a reporter come in, and they were maybe a little afraid of being generalized as something that they weren't. Um, talk to me a little bit about what you learned from them and just sort of what that process was was like and what your takeaways were. Sure. So, I think... I mean, I think even just as I, I had described, we wanted to be just transparent and um, in the story too. And I think the way in which they they were when I went about talking to them was just indicative of many things that they they didn't themselves say either. And so, yes, they were very suspicious um, of me and 
you know, kind of really wanted to know exactly what I was getting at and what my aim was and what the story would say. Um, I uh, had asked, it's always a tricky thing, you know, you don't want to like go masquerade as a, as a congregant and go into a church and mm-hmm. then spring on people when they're done praying and say, hi, I'm a reporter. <laughs> Would you like to talk to me about what just happened back there with you? And what do you think about Scott Walker and politics? <laughs> so, you know, I don't want to like exploit people obviously and, and spring on them. So I had asked for permission to come and attend one of their services and they said, sure, but it's all off the record and you can't do anything. And, you know, okay. So I went and um, then had an off-record conversation with one of the pastors there and sort of explained. He really wanted to know, you know, one thing that struck me um, when you ask people about these types of things, too, is they really want to know who you are and where you're coming from. And um, what, you know, a lot of times when I ask people about religion and and I'm a reporter coming at that, they're like, oh, well, are you religious? What do you Mm -hmm. think about that? They There was definitely a sense of, of, um, I, I thought, of, like, we're not sure whether you're an a-religious person coming to paint us all in a really negative way. And so it was just a lot of conversation up front about where I was coming from and what I wanted to do, which was really just to understand who they are, what how they understand their faith to be, and how that translates or doesn't translate into the way that they might vote and view politics. And so... Um, Eventually, after several conversations and an agreement that I would show them their quotes prior to publication, they let they said, we will we'd rather you not approach people, you know, here. Um, and but we'll handpick some people who could talk to you. And mm-hmm. so he gathered eight folks, eight or nine folks. And we basically had a board meeting <laughs> where I presided and s- took down their names and asked questions and like facilitated this panel discussion dialogue. Um, and so. You know, and and I, one of the overwhelming takeaways for that is that they really, you know, were happy and open to talk about their faith and what it meant to them, but really did not, many of them did not want at all to be boxed in and uh, were very wary of anything, any type of writing that would say that just because they're Wells, they think this. Sure. And not even all Wells think X about X necessarily. And and the takeaway really seemed like, um, like you said, they their faith is important to them, but it's not necessarily something that when they're looking at wh- how they're going to vote, they're going to say, I'm going to vote this way because my religion dictates this. And yeah, more precisely too, like, just because maybe we're known as a congregation that might be theologically more conservative in how we view the Bible doesn't mean we're going to always vote for Republicans. It doesn't mean that it's going to be this knee-jerk, oh, yep, they, they automatically like Trump or... Um, I think they, they spoke, several f- folks spoke about just not wanting to be stereotyped, you know, mm-hmm. thinking like people think that because we're more conservative in this way, we must be very narrow minded in how we view anyone else who disagrees with us. And that's really not us, you know, uh, and feeling as if that they that there was like a need or a want really for their faith that you know, I've had a sense that they wanted to be heard and mm-hmm. wanted to be listened to, but not be judged as far as um how someone else might perceive their beliefs. Wedge Issues is sponsored by wispolitics.com. You can become a wispolitics.com member. Find out more at wispolitics.com slash membership. It's, it seems like the one of the common threads for this story, no matter who you talk to, was this complexity of uh, whether it was conflict within themselves over how they wanted to vote over, or just, you know, not wanting to be boxed in that because 
someone is a particular religion, they're going to vote a particular way. Um, in Green Bay, I was fascinated by the conversations you had um, with Latino Catholic ch- uh, churchgoers that you that you spoke with there. It seemed like there was a lot of inner conflict in a lot of the the people that you talked to there. Um, what, what, what were you hearing from them? Yes, there was. And I think that's a really good point. Conflict, whether exterior or interior, was definitely a common a commonality um, across the folks that I spoke to. So the one woman that I focused on in Green Bay, Maria, um, is very, very passionate about her faith and very devout. And she was one, too, where I was really struck also just in our discussion about uh, why she wanted to become a citizen and deliberations around that. And... Um, you know, just at first her thinking that she, you know, she, she immigrated uh, from Mexico. She, her father had moved as a migrant worker to Green Bay to work in the meatpacking plants. And her, her mother had taken her, she came from a very small rural village um, near Mexico City. And she had been caught by Border Patrol twice in uh, middle school. And then a third time made it over the border and came and then was able to get a residency permit and uh, she has a master's degree now and works in the Green Bay Public School System. But she at first had said, too, that she wasn't even sure whether she really wanted to go through the process, is it worth it, blah, blah, blah. And that hearing the way that politics was going on in the state was, and, and the fact that she was a social worker working in that field and then the 2016 election, she had said, no, I definitely need to become a citizen. But then just this interesting process because that was the first time she she was able to vote learning about the candidates and she um as a hispanic woman said that she felt very alienated by all of the comments trump had made about immigrants and and latinos and she felt like that was an indictment um, and an attack against her and her community and so she said no way i can't vote for him And then she said that she was very excited about Hillary Clinton for a while because she was a woman and felt like that would be a great, a great change. And you'll hear in her interview, she she talks about this. And then she started to learn more about her and learned more about um, her, her politics and positions on uh, sexual ethics and reproductive health and abortion. And, and that was a deal breaker for Maria uh, because she's um, pro-life and, you know, abides by the uh, traditional Catholic Catholic doctrine of no contraception, no sex before marriage. Um, marriage is defined by a man and a woman, and and that there should not be abortion. And so that made her decision really difficult. And I, uh, she didn't share who she did end up voting for, but I think that ended up being something that was really conflicting for her, and um, and that was interesting. I and I think a lot I. Other people have felt like that, too, felt like they really didn't know which way to go. But yeah. um, for her, in such a very personal way, especially with her community in Green Bay, um, that was an interesting dimension. Yeah. Yeah. Let's listen to her conversation. Three years ago, okay. I became citizen. And that was when it was going to um, be the election, like 20. I remembered. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, I can do it. I was like, oh, that was really, really hard. Because as a Catholic, that was, what is the name of the lady? <laughs> Who was Hillary it? Clinton. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I kind of was, okay, so uh, Trump, uh, not at all. I was like, nope. And I was like, well, now what? Who do I have? You know, what choices do I have? So I was learning more about it. I was like, oh, you know, as a woman, you know, it's really nice that we can have a uh, you know, like somebody who, you know, like, cause we know sometimes, like, you know, 
women is like no you know they cannot do much or you know like let the, the men do it i was like what let's make a change but then when i was learning more about it when she, i remember i don't know if i was learning or somebody told me about it she was um uh, let me see supporting abortion and i was like wait a minute i'm pro-life I know maybe it would be a nice change, you know, to have her as a as a president. But I was like, I'm not gonna vote for somebody who is, you know, has different, you know, like beliefs. And I was like, no, no, no. And I was like, this is so hard, because first is, you know, like my my values, my personal values, you know, like as a Catholic. But then um, Donald Trump, like he is against, you know my my community my hispanic community what do i do it was really hard and i was like ah maybe i'm not gonna do it i was like no it's hard i'm not gonna do it and people like hey but you vote and you know like one vote really counts and blah 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 i was like okay so let's go um so yeah i went to vote for the first time and with my friends we we talk about it yeah, because you know we know what's going on and it's hard and I feel like um, I'm citizen the only one in my family because everybody in my family they're just residents and um, I have relatives who are not even legal undocumented and I feel like the same way right now when the president, I feel like I know I'm a citizen, but I not feel safe. I think as a fat and you know Latina, uh, I he can say, well, every you know like Latino citizen, they need to go back. So I feel like um, everybody is you know like, hey, what's gonna happen? And sometimes my relatives, my undocumented um, relatives, they, hey, but you don't have to worry about it, blah, blah, blah. I was like, no. We are, you know, a community. Doesn't matter, you know, your citizen or not. We are, you know, like, in risk of going back to Mexico. Don't feel like because I'm citizen, I can, I'm safe. And I know it's really hard what the president is, you know, like saying about our community. So it's not like, oh, I'm different. No, I can take it differently. No, it's, it's, it's harmful. So in Racine, I spoke to two different uh, church leaders. One was Reverend Ernest Anaye, and he is the pastor of Wayman AME Church. It's African-American Methodist Episcopal Church there. It's a smaller church, uh, predominantly African-American congregation. And then Bishop Lawrence Kirby, who is the pastor of uh, St. Paul Missionary Baptist Church. And that church is actually the oldest African-American, predominantly African-American congregation in the state. And he he told me that he is um, the longest tenured uh, African-American preachers in the state. And he talked to you a little bit about just sort of how he lives as as a pastor and, and how his faith comes to him, right? Right, yeah. Usually when I, I, I just started this interview and I started all interviews with this series was first at, get it really trying to get a fundamental understanding of the faith that one has and the theological implications of that and 
what that means. So really understanding, okay, so you're saying this is your faith. Okay, so next step, how does that translate into how you're living or how you're voting? One of the people in church said one time, I get so sick of these preachers going around here talking about God said this and God said that. I don't believe in any of that. And my response was it was, please don't say that God doesn't speak. Say that you don't hear him. That's a big difference. I said, for instance, there's all kind of music in this room right now. You just don't hear it. The reason why you don't hear it is because you're not on the right frequency. If you got the right frequency, you'd be surprised what you hear. And so then this next clip, he elaborates a bit more on his understanding of the teachings of Jesus and the gospel and uh, expresses some frustration with how he sees, with the focus that he sees that other church leaders have and and how he has seen um, a real decrease in, in a lot of the research and uh, bears this out too with a lot of young people and millennials leaving the church and viewing the, you know, uh, the church as a religious institution as pretty hypocritical. I'm an agitator in our denomination because I'm saying to denomination leaders, we've gotten so religious that we don't do what Jesus did. My grandmother used to say, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And so it is so easy for preachers and religious leaders, domination leaders, become satisfied with building and finance and never reach out to help anybody in the community where they are. I think that's just opposite of Jesus. When you read the gospel, the only people that Jesus criticized, not the sinners, not the adulterers, the only people that Jesus criticized in the gospel was religious people. And we have become, in our day, what the scribes and the Pharisees were in the day of Jesus. Hypocrisy is what dominates religion now. We get religious and we think we're better than the gay, the lesbian, the alcoholic, the drug addict, the prostitute. And we set ourselves up as judges. And because of that, we drive the people further away who we need to be embracing and pulling closer. So the call is to do what Jesus did. So if Jesus would be visiting the jails and advocating for those people, that's what I ought to be doing. If Jesus would be helping those who are gay and lesbian, that's what I ought to be doing. If Jesus would be doing ministry to those who have open addictions or crack or heroin or even marijuana, then that's what I ought to be doing. Because the call on the life of the church is to continue what Jesus started. And I think the church has been a big disappointment to God. Probably one of the reasons why the millenniums and those uh, behind the millenniums don't identify with what they see in organized religion. Doesn't mean they're not spiritual because they are and they'll tell you that. They just don't like what they have seen in traditional religion. After I got an understanding of that, I asked him more about what he has seen as far as changes in Racine 
from the people who come into his church and different types of challenges and political issues that that come into that. And so uh, he's explaining to me here just what that change has been like and how with some of the economic challenges we've seen in Racine, he's seen a lot of people really just lose hope. There was a time when people, particularly African-American, were full of hope and, 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 and just expected things to get better. And that's what kept them working and moving because it's going to get better. That's gone. That's gone. How do you minister a group of hopeless people is the challenge. How do you do that? Keep trying to inspire them. Keep trying to say to them, let me help you. It's going to get better. Getting in the trenches, working with them. They don't want to hear a sermon. They want to see one. And so, almost every drug dealer in Racine knows me. The streets of Racine, though, I am considered the street pastor. Because I will come see about them. I'll go to court with them. You know, I will advocate for them. I will go to jail and see them. I think that's what preachers ought to do, pastors. It is so disappointing to me that many churches, particularly what I call white churches mm-hmm. and evangelical churches, will send four and five hundred thousand dollars to Africa to the foreign mission field and will not help do inner city ministry, won't send a hundred dollars to inner city ministry in their own back door. When America has become the, a real mission field. And so then this next clip is when I had asked him about what his thoughts are on Foxconn and the degree to which that that will really make a difference and lift people out of, of poverty and, and give them job opportunities. It's a lot of the rhetoric that we hear about that and the way that it could really transform that part of the state. Most of the people in our church work. Uh, many of them have decent jobs. Some of them are retired or close to it. So our church is just a little bit different from their larger community but so yeah our people okay most of them but the larger community I think there's a little apathy about how how much Foxconn is going to help them they said 10,000 jobs uh, we have some of our leaders who are advocating for 20 20 20 for minority um, African-American participation 20 percent employment 20 percent work on contracts another 20 percent we're not naive I think a lot of people know that that a lot of people are going to come from outside of the community and not as many as we hope from the inside community, but there are lots of reasons for that. The high school dropout rate, uh, we have 9,000 people in Racine that do not have their GED or high school diploma, 9,000. You would not be able to get a job at Foxconn without at least a high school diploma or GED. If you have a felony, and it's hard to be a black male in America and be 18 above without a felony. I mean, that's a, that's a challenge. If you have a felony, you won't be even considered for some of the jobs. If you smoke marijuana, you will not be considered. And so you automatically X out 
a large number of the populace right there. I've approached the county about starting GED programs here at our church because they have GED programs at Gateway Technical College and at Workforce Development, but people don't fill up the slots that are available. Because a hopeless person may walk across the street, but they're not going to go across town to get help hmm. because he's hopeless. And the, I proved that to the county. They said he had people making availability at Workforce and a Gateway, and they couldn't get anybody to come. And they had a meeting. Three people showed up. After another meeting, five showed up. I said, let me show you how it works. I had a meeting here, and 60-some people showed up. They said, Bishop, we'd be happy to get 20. They said, 60-some. They had another list of 30 that wanted to be here but could not be here. They said, how you doing? I see personal contact. Say somebody, this is how we can help you. Do you want it? Not saying, get up and come with me and I'll help you. It doesn't work. Not in the African-American community. So from community to community or uh, congregation to congregation or even individual to individual, did you see any major contrasts from one group or, or faith that you talked to? Um, and I guess on the flip side, any common threads from your experiences uh, talking to people throughout the state? I suppose a common thread that I saw affirmed again, although it really just kind of fueled, I think, the duality that I, compels me about this issue is that everyone spoke, of course, very, um, you know, lovingly, adoringly about the power of Jesus. Obviously, they're Christians. so. Sure. But again, I guess I'm always struck by, you know, how two, you know, ostensibly genuine, authentic people can can know the words of Jesus and and try in earnest to live them out. And the way that that comes out looking on a political spectrum is on totally opposite, apparently irreconcilable sides when it comes to voting. And so um, that was sort of something I knew to be true. And I don't, it's not, you know, um, super original, but was affirmed for me in that, um, you know, both every person I talked to spoke uh, intimately about a personal relationship they have and um, the way in which who Jesus was and his teachings really inspired them, resonated with them, right? But then we hear um, the way that comes out in organized religion. I mean, we hear Bishop Kirby kind of talking his frustration with white evangelicals that you know, they people can be so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And and Maria also feeling that she has this such this intimate, deep personal connection in her heart and, you know, takes positions on certain things that other folks would find ostensibly unloving or um, not understand how that falls in line. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I don't know if that fully answers your question, but that's sort of what I think is interests me about this whole issue is it's like, how can I mean, you know, we saw like Hillary Clinton um, is an avowed Methodist mm -hmm. and, you know, says that, you know, Barack Obama as well. I mean, Scott Walker talks about his faith very openly on social media mm -hmm. and, and his his faith and in, um, in Jesus. And yet the way that we see them act that out, how they understand that, how that translates to their policies, one is saying that the other is going to, you know, end the country and the world's going to come to an end. Yeah. And so how do we... How do we reconcile that? What does that mean? Who's, you know, and um, so anyway, that's kind of what, if we're going to take both people at their word, that they're earnest and authentic, and this is a genuine thing and belief that they have, 
I don't know. It's, it's a paradox I don't I didn't really solve with this story, but is what what I'm still what I still think is interesting and what I wanted to explore more. Great. Well, this is a it was a fascinating read. I would recommend it to anyone who hasn't picked up uh, this week's copy of the Cap Times, or of course it's available on our website too. Check out Caitlin Farrell's story, Faces of Faith, which I probably couldn't say ten times fast. <laughs> <laughs> um, Caitlin, thanks for coming in and, and talking about this. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Wedge Issues. Our theme music is Oh, Wisconsin by Loxley. We'll be back with new episodes every week on Friday, so make sure you're subscribed so you can keep up to date. If you have any suggestions or feedback, you can tweet at me at Opie or you can email me at J-O-P-O-I-E-N at madison.com. You can also leave us a rating or a review on iTunes or any other podcasting platform, and if you leave us a good one, it might help us out a little bit. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Wedge Issues has been brought to you by wispolitics.com. There are plenty of benefits to becoming a member. You can go to wispolitics.com membership to find out more.